This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. My name is Lori. I owe a big thanks today to Kate, who signed up as a Patreon supporter. Supporters like Kate help cover the costs of making the show, and if you'd like to be as generally fabulous as Kate, please visit the website Her Half of History for links to support on Patreon, Into History, or Buy Me a Coffee. The current series is The History of Girlhood, and this episode does have girls in it. But it is also this year's holiday episode. It's The History of St. Lucia's Day. For those of you not in the know, St. Lucia's Day is December 13th, which is coming up quick. It is celebrated in a number of countries, but today is specifically about the Swedish celebration. You may have seen a picture of a beautiful blonde girl dressed in a white dress with a red sash and a wreath on her head with burning candles. That is St. Lucia, as celebrated in Sweden or countries influenced by Sweden. But the story does not start in Sweden. It starts in Sicily. The year is 304 CE. The emperor of Rome is Diocletian. Well, he's one of the emperors anyway. Diocletian appointed three other co-emperors and junior emperors to help him stabilize the empire, and that dream had not yet totally failed. Diocletian also had a number of other creative ideas about reforms, one of which was to get rid of the Christian cult that was growing like a malignant disease. For the past 300 years, Rome had mostly tolerated Christians because, speaking honestly, those weirdos were no threat. However, they were proliferating. Possibly as much as 10% of the empire was now Christian, and that included a fair number of wealthy and influential people. Also, a fair number of soldiers in the army were Christian. Not only did these people have seriously sketchy beliefs, but those beliefs were in direct conflict with Diocletian's traditional Roman cult. He himself was associated with Jupiter, his co-emperor with Hercules. Sacrifices to the gods were required, and Christians refused to participate, which was destabilizing, both religiously and politically. Something had to be done. Over four edicts, Diocletian made his displeasure known, ending with one in 304 which declared that all men, women, and children would gather for a collective sacrifice. Anyone who refused was to be executed. All of the above falls firmly into the category of history with multiple accepted sources. Two years ago, when I did a holiday special on the Virgin Mary, I discussed what counts as a historical source and what doesn't. Basically, the gold standard is multiple eyewitness accounts written shortly after the event by people who had no reason to lie. That's a high standard, and when we haven't got it, we make do with what we have got, making judgments about just how confident we can be about what we think we know. I'm pretty confident about the Diocletian persecutions of Christians. But as you likely know, Diocletian did not win the long-term battle against Christianity. Subsequent generations of Christians wrote many accounts that are collectively known as the Acts of the Martyrs. These texts tell the stories of the Christians who suffered horrible deaths because of their beliefs during this period. 
Unfortunately, they were mostly written well after the fact by people who could not possibly have been eyewitnesses for the purpose of promoting faith. As historical sources go, that's problematic. I don't mean to suggest that no one died a horrible death. I'm quite sure that many people did. However, the actual details of particular deaths tend to sound like something my uncle's best friend's great-aunt's neighbor might have said, and historians look on the details of most of these martyrs with extreme skepticism. I will hasten to add that this does not mean that you cannot believe them, only that this belief is based on faith rather than on historical evidence. Which is fine, it's just good to be clear on the difference. Anyway, one of those martyrs is St. Lucy. Lucy appeared on the list of Christian martyrs in about 450 CE, that's 146 years after the Diocletian persecutions. The most popular account of her tragic end was written by Italian chronicler Jacobus de Voragine in about 1260, that's 956 years after the Diocletian persecutions. The story goes that in the year 304, a girl named Lucy traveled from her home in Syracuse, Sicily, to the shrine of St. Agatha. There, Lucy prayed for her mother, who had been hemorrhaging blood for years. Lucy fell asleep, and St. Agatha appeared to her in a vision and said that her mother was made whole, which upon awaking was miraculously true. So Lucy made a lifetime vow of virginity and also began giving all her wealth to the poor. Naturally, the man to whom she was promised objected to both of those vows. When confronted, Lucy said she had found someone far nobler and better than her fiancé, by which she meant God. God is admittedly hard to compete with, but still there are more tactful ways of dumping a guy. The ex-fiancé got mad, and can you blame him? But his response was to out Lucy as a Christian to the legal authorities, and remember Diocletian is stamping out Christianity just now, so that's not good. Lucy got hauled before a judge, and the two of them had a little theological debate, and then he sentenced her to a brothel where she would lose her virginity for sure. But miraculously, when the villains came to drag her away, the Holy Ghost descended upon her and made her very, very heavy. So heavy that they could not move her. Even with multiple men, ropes, enchanters, and oxen, she, quote, abode alway, still as a mountain, without moving, end quote. The judge was furious, so he ordered a pyre built around her so that he could burn her to death. But though the flames raged, Lucy herself did not burn. She continued to preach and prophesy of Christ, so they stabbed her in the throat with a sword. But still she did not die until a priest came and gave her the sacraments. Then she gave up the ghost, still a virgin, and became the patron saint of Syracuse. That is the story of Lucy as told by Voragine. Lucy's assigned saint's day was December 13th, chosen because in the Julian calendar that was the winter solstice, the day of least sunlight. The name Lucy, or Lucia, or Luca, is derived from the Latin lux, which means light. Lucy's association with light was further strengthened by a still later addition to her story that appeared in a 1497 account, that's 1,193 years after her death. According to that and later versions, Lucy's eyes were so beautiful that young men were smitten by her, a major problem for a girl with a vow of virginity. Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, 
For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If you ask me, Jesus was speaking metaphorically here, saying that we should prune those habits and practices that are not helping us to get where we want to go, which is good solid advice, whether you're religious or not. But of course, there is the totally literal interpretation, which is the one used in this addition to the story. Lucy's eyes were the cause of temptation for men and a danger for her, so she plucked her own eyes out with a wooden stake, placed them on a platter, and had them delivered to the most amorous young man. She is often depicted in art with two eyes being served up on a plate, though I notice that she still has eyes in her head as well. I'm not too sure how that works, anatomically speaking, but the paintings are gruesome enough as they are, so I'm glad. At any rate, Lucia is the patron saint of light and vision. She was an inspiration for poets like Dante and John Donne. It makes total sense that she is a popular saint in Syracuse, in Sicily, and in Italy as a whole. It makes a whole lot less sense that her celebration is so popular in Sweden and Scandinavia, Protestant countries, everyone, and they were never part of the Roman Empire anyway. That development came about because December 13th was already a significant date to them, long before Christianity arrived. Naturally, for people living so close to the Arctic Circle, or even beyond the Arctic Circle for some of them, the winter solstice was highly significant. It was the darkest night of the year, and the return of the sun was to be celebrated with lights and feasting. You had to finish your work for the season and the feasting in advance, because if you did not, the Lusikaringen, an evil witch, would ride through the skies to punish you and steal naughty children away. You might even call on a heathen goddess of light to protect you. All of that was probably in place well before Christianity ever made it that far north, though admittedly written records are scarce. The first attempt to convert the Swedes was in 830. But people aren't converted all in a day, and the process wasn't considered complete until the 12th century. One of the reasons Christianity has been so successful at spreading around the world is that it is amazingly good at blending local practices into Christian doctrine. And here we are with a Christian saint celebrated with light on the darkest night of the year at exactly the same time as the local tradition of light and feasting was happening anyway. Even so, there is no record of a girl dressing up in white as Lucia until 1764, when a traveler wrote that a white-clad lady with a belt around her waist and large candles came in with a great many good things to eat. It was already being listed as a long-standing custom in that area, so there is no knowing just how old it was. By 1764, December 13th was already not actually the winter solstice. The Julian calendar had been set up by Julius Caesar, with the help of astronomers from Alexandria and Egypt, which means they were Cleopatra's subjects, probably working under her patronage. The Julian calendar was a major improvement over previous calendars, but still not perfect. It had too many leap days, so over the centuries there was a little drift against what the sun thought a full year was. The Gregorian calendar was a tiny little modification that cut out some of the leap days to keep the sun better in line. Sweden had switched to the Gregorian calendar only 11 years before that first recorded instance of a St. Lucia celebration, but clearly traditions don't actually care what either the sun or the calendar says. St. Lucia's day had always been December 13th, and it continued to be December 13th, even if the actual solstice was a little bit later. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. By the 19th century, nationalism was in full swing, and people across Europe wanted to celebrate whatever their local customs were, or create new ones if necessary. A lot of our Christmas traditions date from the 19th century. Dressing up as Lucia and wandering from house to house to either serve or beg for coffee, baked goods, and alcoholic drinks was a popular pastime for young adults. Even so, it did not achieve universal acceptance in Sweden until the 20th century, when schools and local municipalities began promoting it. By then, Lucia was played by a young girl, chosen specially for the role. The first national Lucia was chosen in 1927, but most schools and communities have a local version as well. Then and now, Lucia wears a white dress and a red sash, and on her head is a crown of real or possibly battery-operated candles. I have read several websites that explain that the unusual headwear is because Lucia herself wore such a wreath when she visited the Christians hiding in the catacombs. She needed light down there, obviously, and wearing the light on her head left her hands free to bring much-needed food and supplies. Which is a beautiful image and perfectly logical, except that that Voragine older account of her life that I told you about didn't actually include a scene like that, did it? So we're talking about a still later addition to the story. One possibility is that this part is a blend with yet another tradition. In Germanic countries, it wasn't Santa Claus who brought Christmas gifts, but the Christkindlein, or Christ Child, who is often depicted as a young girl, in white, with candles. Wherever the Lucia costume comes from, she now leads the procession, and the other girls follow, also dressed in white, but with just a candle in hand instead of a crown. Boys get to be stars or Christmas elves at the back. The problem with this is that every girl wants to be Lucia, and some of the boys do too. It often came down to a popularity contest with the inevitable hurt feelings and cattiness involved. Today, Lucia may be chosen by random draw in an attempt to calm that down and keep the holiday spirit. Regardless of how Lucia is chosen, everyone sings during the procession. There are many St. Lucia songs, and if you're interested, stay tuned at the end of today's episode where I will play and sing the most famous one. It's a traditional Italian tune, not a Swedish tune, but I suppose that's appropriate for St. Lucy. I'll be singing in English, not Swedish, so hopefully you can get the words, which are far more about midwinter than they are about Christianity. Today, the most common treat to serve on St. Lucia's Day is Lusikater which are saffron buns twisted up into a shape which I did not recognize as having a significance, but they are apparently eyes, to represent St. Lucia plucking hers out, 
or possibly to represent Lusa Kerningen, who was peering in to look for naughty children. Take your pick. Or still other sources say the shape is to resemble a cat's tail. Again, choose whatever interpretation you like. The saffron not only gives the buns a golden yellow color, reminiscent of candlelight, but it is also suitably luxurious and celebratory as the world's most expensive spice by weight. I have never made or eaten lusicata, but I am considering it for this December the 13th, coming up this week. I will place a link to the recipe on the website at herhalfofhistory.com in case you would like to join me. Though this particular St. Lucia tradition is clearly from Sweden, you may be able to see a version of it in other countries as well. The neighboring Scandinavian countries know a good idea when they see one, and they have picked up the tradition. At one point, it was also possible to see it in the United States, which is not surprising given that in 1910, one out of every five Swedes on the planet lived in the United States. Unfortunately, our Swedish-American communities have been at least partially absorbed into the general culture, and I have never seen a St. Lucia procession here. Possibly I'm in the wrong part of the country. If you are celebrating St. Lucia's Day this year, head on over to the website herhalfofhistory.com and leave a comment telling us how it goes. My sources today are all over the internet, but I have listed them on the website where you can also find pictures and a transcript. You can also find links to be a supporter, and the various ways to do that come with various benefits like bonus episodes or ad-free episodes depending on which plan you choose. All of them come with the general knowledge that you are a wonderful person. If you're interested, stay tuned after I stop talking for a rendition of one Santa Lucia song, and definitely come back next week when I return to the general series on the history of girlhood. Last week I talked about girls at school, but lots of girls weren't in school. And the most common reason was because there weren't any schools. But the second most common reason was because the girls were too busy to go. Don't miss the history of girls at work. Thanks.
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.